Good afternoon and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. We are going to talk about the life of George Floyd today. That is a uh, somebody that <laughs> lost his life the other day in a, a horrific way. And, and you possibly have seen the video. You've been hearing the talk. You've been seeing the anger and the frustration of Americans, not only in Minneapolis, but right here in our city of Memphis last night. People coming together and trying to make sense out of something that really doesn't make sense. And we want to talk about that today on our program. And I'm really thankful that I have a friend, Frank Anderson. Dr. Frank Anderson and I have known each other for a long time. I remember when he was a workshipper at seminary. Today, he serves at the Stephen Olford Center Chair of Expository Preaching, the Associate Professor of Ministry and Missions, and also the Director for the Center for Racial Reconciliation at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Dr. Frank Anderson, how are you, my dear brother? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing well. And, and that's by the grace of God. And uh, let me just say, uh, this year marks 30 years since you and I had the opportunity to first work together in Evangelism Explosion. And just always good to connect with you. Is it been 30 years? It's been 30 years. <laughs> oh, no. oh, my. Fall of 1990 is when I met you, and I met you in the context of Evangelism Explosion. Some great memories. I'm, I'm glad that we still have a connection, although we don't get to see each other talk to each other very often. You're a very busy man and got a lot of responsibilities there on the campus of Union University. But I'm thankful that from time to time we get to hook up, mostly on this program, mostly over the telephone. But it's been a while since we've gotten back together on this program, too. Well, it's good to be with you again on the program, and I'm, I'm just grateful for our fellowship over the years. Frank, can I praise the Lord with you for his blessing and your kidney transplant last April, something that I know you and your precious wife, family, friends, your church family have been praying for, that God would deliver you and heal you. You were spending so much time having dialysis and going through all of what takes place with those that have kidney problems, and we're just so thankful that God has put you on a course to a better health. I'm so grateful to him and just thankful for people who supported me and prayed for me during um, five and a half years of, of dialysis. And so I can't even begin to express without getting emotional how gracious God has been to me and, and what it feels like to feel as well as I do. And uh, I remember conversations we've had about this and times that we've prayed about it. And so, again, I'm, I'm grateful to you and others who have kept me lifted up in prayer. Oh, praise God. Well, in your responsibilities at their union as the director at the Center for Racial Reconciliation, what do those responsibilities include, Frank? Well, to sum it up, uh, what we want to accomplish at Union is the development of a, a more diverse community. We want to do this primarily to the glory of God. There have been uh, people in administration who I feel have come to an honest place about the history of race in this country, with Union being a Southern Baptist institution. There has been uh, great understanding within the university community of the history of the Southern Baptist Convention and how that plays into America's racial history. But again, uh, the, the, the primary purpose is to give glory to God by recognizing who we are in Christ and what it means to allow the love of Christ to flow through us. And um, we're, we're, we're working hard through programming, through our curriculum, through 
our engagement with uh, uh, other entities, including Lane College right there, or right here rather, with us, uh, in Jackson, um, uh, to uh, create a, an environment that's more conducive for what I refer to as authentic uh, uh, racial reconciliation. I, I love that word authentic because uh, I think of the word as meaning uh, God-authored. Uh, there are a lot of different notions about racial reconciliation, but uh, no approach is better uh, than uh, uh, what God has given us, uh, not only the understanding to engage, but the power to engage. And so much of that is a matter of allowing his love uh, to uh, flow through us. And I'll say one other thing. Our student population here in Jackson is largely, uh, really for the most part, traditional, which means we've got uh, students uh, coming to the university, students living on campus who have just stepped out of uh, high school into college. So we have a tremendous opportunity, but also uh, an awesome burden to help them go forward uh, having given over to God what needs to be given over to him from the past, and also encouraging them to do what they can to prevent so much of what we're seeing, so much of what's causing tension today uh, from occurring in the future, and uh, to do so to the glory of God. Well, Frank, as a black man, have you ever wrongfully been attacked or discriminated against in an undeniably racially motivated way? That's kind of a tough question for me, and I'll tell you why. I have not experienced as much direct discrimination. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that there have probably been instances when um, I've been victimized uh, more than I realized by uh, discrimination. Um, but I, I, I've been blessed to the point of um, almost being sheltered. Um, but what I have seen, by virtue of my, my being black, by virtue of my being engaged uh, for all of my life in the black community, while at the same time, I've been in diverse situations for most of my life, but I've seen discrimination over and over and over and over again. Also, where my parents are concerned, they have dealt directly with discrimination, and some of that has had an effect on me that I cannot... Uh, help but notice, and I'm sure it's had an effect on me that, that I haven't fully realized as of, of yet. You and I have talked about this before over the years. I never will forget my father not being allowed to enter a Christian college solely on the basis of his being black. And that's during my lifetime. That was not something that occurred before I was born. So I'll never forget the look on his face when he was denied and it was explained to him that he was denied for that particular reason and taking the effect it had on me for the longest time. Uh, I absolutely refused to go to a seminary that was predominantly white. I also refused to go to any seminary that didn't uh, um, seem to um, have a basic theological position that that I had at that particular point in time, but but my seminary experience was delayed uh, because of, uh, I, I explain it this way, a racial chip I had on my shoulder as a result of what I saw happen with my, my father. 
And God has a sense of humor. I ended up serving at the same school where uh, he was denied. And, and, and you know my seminary experience. Yes. I had a predominantly white Southern Baptist <laughs> seminary. And now I'm at Union University. So God yeah. has, a, has a sense of humor about these things. That's one way in which I've, I've been directly affected by what has transpired with my parents and, and having served as pastor in uh, uh, over the years, too predominantly black congregations uh, for a total of 32 years between the two churches, I've witnessed over and over and over and again the discrimination that other people have gone through. And so there's always been this burden that I've had to engage in the fight against racism and uh, for racial reconciliation under racial unity. Um, because while I can't point to having been attacked, and I've been called some things, I've walked out of, uh, in fact, uh, one night, uh, one of my, my uh, seminary fellows, who I'm sure you know, Phil Anderson, no relationship, uh, but uh, we left an EE session one Tuesday night um, almost 30 years ago, and I dropped him off at home in Bartlett, and I stopped at a... Uh, a convenience store around the corner from where he uh, lived at that time uh, to uh, uh, get a coat. And when I walk out, there's a, there's a police car there, and I'm hearing all of my information uh, concerning uh, my, my, my driver's license and everything uh, over his radio. And I had done nothing. He never said anything to me. Uh, I, I'm certain he saw me go into the store. And so other than seeing me go into the store, I don't know what cause he could have had aside not for, for uh, uh, checking on my car and checking on me, aside from my being black and um, being in a predominantly white neighborhood at that time. Well, Frank, today we are looking at the horrific situation that took place in Minneapolis George Floyd, uh, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reported that he moved to Minneapolis from his native Houston several years ago in hopes of finding work and starting a new life. This was according to Christopher Harris, a lifelong friend of Floyd's. He had lost his job as a bouncer at a restaurant. Like so many Americans, when the stay-at-home orders were issued due to this coronavirus pandemic, mm-hmm. 46 years old, he grew up in Houston's Third Ward, where he and Harris met in middle school. He was six feet, six inches, and emerged as a star tight end for the Jack Yates High School and played in the 1992 state championship game in the Houston Astrodome. He earned the nickname Gentle Giant. 2007, George Floyd was charged with armed robbery and home invasion in Houston, and in 2009 was sentenced to five years in prison as part of a plea deal, according to the court documents. Harris, Floyd's childhood friend, said that he and some of their mutual friends had moved to Minneapolis to search out jobs about 2014. Harris said he talked Floyd into moving there after he got out of prison. He landed a job in security at Salvation Army Store in downtown Minneapolis. He later started working two jobs, one driving trucks and another as a bouncer where he was known as Big Floyd. The Houston Chronicle reported that George Floyd leaves behind a six-year-old daughter living in Houston with her mother. Nobody knows who George Floyd is other than we see pictures of a video of him on the ground with a police officer's knee in his neck, holding him down to the ground, Frank. Yeah. 
this is nowhere close to being the first time something like this has occurred. In the, the history of this country, this is, has become quite common. There are even more recent incidents of officers arresting individuals who are black using even their their knee or their foot to uh, keep someone down. This is not the first death. I mean, even when they're begging for air, they can't breathe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is not. Uh, I mean, we went through this a few years ago. Uh, I heard the uh, mother of the victim who died a few years ago um, as a result of the, the same type of situation when he was saying he couldn't breathe. We saw parts of that on um, video as well. I think what has been so difficult about this uh, is, first of all, more people are exposed to social media. I don't want to... Uh, uh, misplaced credit for this this comment. So I probably need to be careful about naming names here, but I, I think it was um, our friend Brian Loritt who said um, uh, a couple of days ago that this is not a matter of the situation becoming better or worse so much as it is a matter of people being able to video or people being able to use their their phones to capture what has been going on for a long time. And I've heard several people say uh, over the last 48 hours about the George Floyd incident that uh, had we not had people standing and and uh, recording this, we probably wouldn't know as much about this case as we do and would not uh, feel the way we feel about it. But I think people need to understand that this is this is commonplace. I'm ashamed that uh, I have reason and opportunity to say what I'm about to say, but uh, I've been kind of sitting back and just waiting for people to come forth with things about George Floyd's past to negate what happened. And no matter uh, what he has done in the past, no matter the reason for which he was arrested the other day, there's no excuse for anyone. No, no. And Frank, but don't get me wrong. My reason for mentioning his move yeah, from no, Houston, no, no, just no, painting no, a picture, you know. Yeah, I didn't yeah. take that to be. There are, and uh, here, here I go again with what, what's popping up on social media. I saw one post where an individual was saying that he actually glories in the fact that this happened oh my. Uh, and that this person got what what they deserve and so that and that's commonplace too oh my uh, i'm accustomed to i'm accustomed to to reading uh those kinds of comments or hearing those kinds kinds of comments after incidents of this nature but i think the first thing that people need to understand is uh, a lot of the frustration uh within the african-american community is that this is not New. Uh, this has been been going on really uh, 
through the history of America. Yes. And on that, the enemy of this program, Frank, is time. And I want to cover so much with you, and we have so little time. And we're probably going to have to plan on doing another show in the future to continue the conversation. But we've got time right now, but I want to move the conversation into a Barna research that was done entitled, What is the Church's Role in Racial Reconciliation? That was written back in 2019. Christians disagree on a problem and solution of racial reconciliation. A previous Barna study showed a gap between ethnic groups on whether racism is a problem of the past. 59% of black U.S. adults and 39% of white adults strongly disagree. There was also confusion on whether the church specifically contributed to the problem. Overall, 6 in 10 U.S. adults somewhat or strongly disagreed. 62% black Americans, however, were more likely than white Americans to view Christian churches as complicit. 17% versus 9%. The current study for where do we go from here went a step further, asking respondents how the church should respond in light of our nation's 400-year history of injustices against black people. Though the responses were fairly distributed and multiple responses were allowed, 28% say there's nothing the church should do. A third of white practicing Christians, 33% selects this option, double the percentage of black practicing Christians who feel this way, 15%. Answers such as repentance, 16%. Restitution, 12%. Layment, 8%, are less popular. A surprising number of respondents across the demographics say they don't know how the church should respond to the historical mistreatment of black Americans, 26% overall. Well, I heard some reference to history in that statement twice. I think the first thing that the church needs to do, and and people who know me, uh, I'm going to say I sound like a broken record on this particular point. We, we need to come to an honest place about um, history, um, uh, racial history in America, and more specifically, uh, racial history within the Christian community in America. It's an ugly history um, that a lot of people um, uh, know uh, very little about. Um, it's interesting to me that when I start talking about the history of race in America, uh, when people respond, uh, sometimes the only thing you hear about is slavery. And the end of slavery was not the end of the ugliness of America's racial history. And it certainly was not the end of the church's hand in that uh, racial history. So I think, uh, I think as Americans, and in as much as the uh, the history of black people in America, the history of uh, race in America, and when I speak of the history of race, um, I, I think uh, we're doing uh, a disservice to uh, the whole process of trying to solve or address this problem if we limit it just to the history of African Americans. African Americans are not uh, the only people who have suffered discrimination. So I'm saying the history in totality. I think when we look at it, we become ashamed as Americans. And I want to I want to get through this question because I know we're short on time. But let me throw in here that one of the reasons that I uh, felt this to be a call on my life from God to kind of uh, shift the focus of my ministry 
more to racial reconciliation uh, was because this, and, and pardon my way of expressing this, this race mess is an impediment to the ability of every believer in America to share the gospel. If, if we can't um, understanding creation, as I think uh, the, the vast, vast majority of believers do, if we can't come together uh, where the issue of race is concerned, why should anybody give us credibility when we begin uh, when we begin to share the gospel story? That was my biggest reason yeah. for saying yes to this particular opportunity. Um, all of us as Christians need to be ashamed of this. We like to talk about Revelation 7 and 9 and other passages as though that is something that is uh, futuristic. And I think a lot of people look at it from the standpoint of, well, that's promised, it's going to happen, we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, uh, united if we can't get perfectly united here, which we won't, but if we can't be perfectly united here. Uh, God has already reconciled us uh, to him. But, um, uh, and I won't get into my, my, my thing about the eternality of God, how, uh, in my opinion, there's no such thing uh, for God as the future and the past. But I, I will get into how Jesus has instruct, instructed us to pray, and I think that also means he wants us to live in a manner that... Uh, 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 compels us to try to move this world in the direction uh, of being here on earth as things are, not as things will be, but as things are uh, for uh, uh, our eternal God in heaven. And so uh, we've, we've got a responsibility to tackle this, but it's going to be painful. And I'll, I'll say one other thing about that, and, and I'm going to try to get two in this one. I think I think we're we're thinking too much in terms of guilt and not enough in terms of responsibility, and there's a difference. Um, uh, we have definitely um, a responsibility to address this issue as believers in Christ. And also, and I, I I say this quite often these days, I don't understand why white people in the 21st century get so upset about the issue of white privilege. If you've not uh, committed any acts of racism or if you um, uh, truly believe that you don't harbor uh, racist sentiments in your heart, there's nothing for you to feel guilty about where white privilege is concerned. In fact, I would suggest that uh, if you're white, you consider white privilege in the context of the sovereignty of God. Why has God allowed this? And that's a rhetorical question at the moment. But it's a rhetorical question that presses the issue of what do I do with this? I know that there are a lot of people in the African-American community who will hear me say what I'm about to say and uh, may may come at me with sticks and stones. But I even think of the African-American plight from the standpoint of black privilege. I, I tend to feel that while what has happened as a matter of race is wrong, uh, it is definitely ungodly, 
But I get this sense that God is uh, trusting me, if I may personalize this. I get the sense that he's trusting me with what he's allowed uh, me as an African-American and uh, uh, the African-American community to go through down through the years. Uh, he's trusting us to, to give glory to God where this situation is concerned. And that doesn't mean laying down and rolling over and not saying anything about race, but uh, he wants all of us to do something yes. with what has happened here. And Frank, I hate to cut it off here because you're speaking so eloquently right now, and I thank you for sharing with us. I do want to just mention this as we start to say goodbye finally. In that same Barna report, data showed that older practicing Christians are more likely to say nothing is required of the church in racial reconciliation, while younger generations see a path toward repairing the damage. The younger the Christian, the more they want the church to do. As an educator on the campus of a Christian university, that's got to be an encouraging, positive sign for you to know that you've got the mind and the heart of the younger generation to mold and to lead forward. It is. It is. And uh, something that I have to deal with uh, to be able to uh, appreciate uh, uh, this sign of encouragement or this sign of promise and hope is um, you know, I'll be 60 in September. And I've seen a lot and I've heard a lot. And I have to make sure that I don't allow um, a sad, long history uh, to uh, preclude um, the the signs of uh, my accepting the signs of hope around me. I think one of the reasons older believers uh, may speak is uh, the Bonner report suggests that we speak um, is that seen too much and have hoped too long. And I think we need to pray to God about uh, helping us to to remember that He is God, and there's no reason for us to lose hope. And if we don't do that will poison this younger generation. Dr. Frank Anderson, God bless you, my dear brother. It is so good to talk to you. Thank you for helping us think through this, put perspective into this from a biblical worldview, which we as followers of Jesus Christ must do. There is a righteous indignation, but we want to carry that to the cross and ask God to help us as we look to bridge the gap that we've had for so long. How can we make a difference? We're just stepping into this. You know this is a big pull here. <laughs> it's very deep. We want to get back together and, and continue the conversation. But I appreciate you. Hey, if friends want to get in touch with you to learn more about uh, what you do at Union, uh, is there an email address? Yeah. Uh, my email address is fanderson at uu.edu. Well, Frank, God bless you. So you'll come back with me sometime, right? Uh, Anytime, Byron. Anytime. All right. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.